0: Conflicts in the Middle East like the recent Hamas attack and Israel's immediate retaliation are taking a heavy human toll. A global economic downturn may follow as the escalating conflict also has a direct bearing on oil and gas prices. The regions, the biggest energy producer, and countries like India, the biggest consumers. Just for perspective, crude oil prices had shot up as much as 240% during the 1990 Gulf War. That's what my research suggests. It again shot up 45% when Iraq was attacked in 2003 and around 40% during the 2011 Libya War. Of course, it fell subsequently. Now let me be clear. It has not reached such panic state, but it's prudent to take note and precautions. And that's exactly the reason why last week, on her way back from Morocco, Finance Minister Nirmala Sitaraman talked about her immediate concerns. Peace in the region, oil prices, which in turn affecting food security aspects and therefore inflation, and finally, the fragmentation of supply chains. The recent crisis in the Middle East and the concerns about fuel back again are worries which many countries do hold and they expressed as well. So the concerns and uncertainties are about the peace as a positive factor, fuel concerns affecting the food security aspects and therefore the inflation to that extent and the fragmentation of supply chains. These were the three concerns thinking about the near future. It's Thursday, 19th of October. From the Economic Times, I'm your host, Arjeev Barman. This is The Morning Brief. In today's episode, I have actually decided to talk less and listen more for a change as we have someone joining us who has seen it all and lived through many such global incidents. Robert Bob McNally, founder and president of Rapidan Energy. Robert is a global energy consultant. His book, Crude Volatility, The History of Boom-Bust Oil Prices, is a classic But what interests me the most was his stint in White House itself. You see, Bob served as President George Bush Jr.'s top energy advisor on both the National Economic Council as well as the National Security Council. Remember, between 2001 and 2009, they were very, very charged times for both energy policy as well as geopolitics. You had the California energy crisis, you had 9-11, the attacks on the Twin Tower, which eventually led to the second Gulf War. Since oil and geopolitics are forever intertwined, I wanted a masterclass with Bob to figure out the immediate impact, the wider geopolitical shifts, and how, if at all, conflicts like what we're seeing today will accelerate the green agenda. Bob, welcome to the show. Thanks for making time.
1: Arji, great to be with you. Thank you for having me on.
0: Bob, I want to start by, you know, going straight into the world we live in. You know, we've already seen unprecedented global volatility. Post-COVID, the U.S.-China geopolitics, the whole fragmentation of supply chains, the China plus one strategy that many global corporations had to adapt. Russia Ukraine well that's still simmering and now west asia on the boil united states and others are desperately trying to contain the conflict but every day there is a new development there are new actors has 2022 2023 be among the most volatile years you have seen in recent times
1: Ariji, you know the answer is yes you could maybe even go to And start with 2020 and COVID and so forth. We have an expression in the financial markets, a black swan, black swan events, black swans being, as you know, a rare event that has outsized implications. Well, it just seems, Arajit, these days, the sky is full of black swans. It's no longer rare. Uh, COVID, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the oil price spike it caused last year. A war getting going in the Levant, and hopefully it will not spread to the region, but there's every risk that it might. On top of that, 40-year highs of inflation, central banks raising rates, all this occurring when the world was, as you mentioned, hoping to go to the UAE at COP28 and talk about a sort of centrally planned, aggressively rapid transition away from the 80% of the world's energy that comes from hydrocarbons to alternatives and renewables. So really, not only in terms of the black swans and the events that are hitting us, but coming at a time when the world is trying to decarbonize and trying to kind of create a new order after this post-World War II order crumbles, uh, makes for the most volatile period I think uh, I've seen in my professional lifetime.
0: Wow, that's a pretty bold statement to make. You talked about markets and the macro uncertainties. Now, the markets priced in a lot of the recession risk in 2022 and priced it out in 2023 as recession, especially US recession, had not been happening this year to the extent it was originally forecasted. But like West Asian wars of the past, the current conflict has the potential to disrupt the world economy and even tip it into a bigger recession if more countries are drawn in. As I said, the number of actors involved keep rising, as do the number of fronts.
1: You're right. You know, when we think about how the world dodged a bullet with regard to the most recent recession risk, I think we have to look to last year and how oil prices shot up from 80 to almost $130 a barrel uh, in, in several weeks. Why? because experts thought the International Energy Agency advised that as a result of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we would lose 3 million barrels a day of Russian exports. And so it was when that disruption didn't happen and oil prices fell that I think the world dodged a recession bullet. And India played an important role in sort of making sure that Russian oil still flowed, because Europe imposed an import ban. But India went from almost nothing in terms of an uh, importer of Russian oil, to now one of the major importers of Russian oil. And that helped keep oil prices low. And so we delayed uh, a recession there. But you know, Ar-Gi, I think we need to step back and ask ourselves, what about the structural drivers over the last 40 years that that were positive for the global economy, the entry of China as a manufacturing, a low-cost manufacturing center for the world? Uh, The end of great power conflict in the late 1980s, beating inflation in the 70s and early 80s, democratization, liberalization, free trade. All of these things were structural factors over the last four decades that, in retrospect, created a very positive period in terms of global growth. And India now developing rapidly into that. But the bad news is every single one of those positive structural factors is reversing we have great power conflict. China is now viewed as an adversary, and this comes in the, as well as in the transition discussion as well. Interest rates are not going down, they're going up. Inflation is not going down, it's going up. So you have a series of structural, let's call it headwinds, that even if we dodged a bullet with recession last year, the world economy has to reckon with.
0: And this is already at a time when I would say OPEC plus have been impacted by supply cuts, Declining inventories and concerns that lofty prices will once again destroy demand. And that's why I guess our finance minister was expressing her concerns. And number one, or number two, right after peace in the region was oil prices.
1: Absolutely. Most, as we say, barrel counters, those of us who attempt to calculate, monitor the supply and the demand of inventory in the world. Most of us the International Energy Agency, United States Department of Energy, OPEC secretariat, OPEC has its own very fine analysts. Most of us who calculate the balances see a very tight second half of this year. And oil prices rose sharply in August and September, as we saw. But although they they sold off just before the war began. So the market is in a very uncertain time. There is a concern about underinvestment on the supply side, and Saudi Arabia is very concerned about that. The good news is the world economy is recovering. The bad news is we're having this underinvestment in supply, and I'm concerned, and my view is, that we are at the foothills of a multi-year boom cycle in oil prices, that demand is going to be strong, and supply has been crippled by years of underinvestment. And as a result, you know, we should expect a multi-year boom cycle, that'll be a challenge for major oil importers like India, like China, like Japan and Korea.
0: Because immediately what happened after the weekend surprise attack, Brent went up 5% to around $88 a barrel. Goldman came out with an estimate saying $100 a barrel. But if Iran gets drawn in, then it's all gloves are off, which many people say it might, And then I was reading a Bloomberg estimate. They estimate that if Tehran joins the escalating tensions, oil prices could potentially soar to $150 a barrel and global growth dropping to 1.7%. That means a recession that takes about $1 trillion off global output. Would you say the war risk premium has returned to the oil markets in the last 10 days?
1: It certainly has. There has been about a 3 to $4 uh, premium put into the price. But in my view, it's probably too low. And were the war to expand to the Gulf region, and not just in the Levant, in Israel and Gaza, I think you know we'd be seeing oil prices rise well above $100 a barrel. For the simple reason that the Middle East, and especially the Arabian Gulf, remains the world's most important energy Supply and export source. 40% of the world's traded crude oil, exported crude oil, passes through the Strait of Hormuz. About 18% of refined products, gasoline, diesel, also pass through there. The world's largest LNG liquefaction facility, Ras in Qatar, is also inside the Gulf. And there are not many easy ways to circumvent the Gulf if it's blocked. And as we saw, you may recall, in September of 2019, Iran launched a missile attack on Abqaiq, the perhaps the most valuable piece of real estate on planet Earth, uh, the seven million barrel a day Saudi processing facility. Arji, that Sunday evening in Asia, when the markets opened, we saw the largest single increase in crude oil prices in history that day, because that was a direct attack on literally the world's most important energy facility and it raised the perceived risk of a broader conflict so when we think about iran possibly getting involved in this war and the conflict and the fighting spreading to the gulf we have really the potential loss of supply that would cause an oil price spike well into the hundred dollar barrel level the potential loss of lng supplies going into winter with asia and europe particularly dependent on qatar and i think you would have uh, a price spike big enough to to unfortunately cause a recession
0: so iran clearly as of now seems to be the big wild card in the room because it could as you drew parallels from 2019 it could do the same as retaliation if it finds itself under israel or american attack
1: that is the risk i don't think the iranian regime wants to challenge the united states however As we see throughout history, uh, sometimes uh, wars and conflicts spread and engulf other parties in ways that at the beginning, perhaps major countries did not want to see happen. But this can happen. And so there is a risk that the conflict will spread to the region and that Iran, as the main supporter, particularly of Hezbollah in Lebanon, this is what most analysts and market participants like myself are watching, will the war expand to the north of Israel, south of Lebanon, and involve Iran's proxy, Hezbollah. And if it does, there is the risk that it spreads then to the Gulf region, and it becomes a general engagement, in which case we'd be looking at much higher energy prices, unfortunately.
0: Incidentally, 2023 is also the 50th anniversary of the Arab-Israeli war of 1973. As you said, you're, you're headed right after this interview to a conference to talk about that. Now, The Arab-Israeli War of 73 led to an oil embargo and years of stagflation in industrial economies. Since we're talking about oil, 1973 became infamous for what was known as the first oil shock. The Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries imposed its boycott and within a year raised prices more than 300%. At the height of the embargo,
1: half a million people were thrown out of work. World wars among big powers are quite possible to control dwindling oil supplies. Just like it did in 1973 when an OPEC oil embargo led to an international shortage and rocked the global economy. In 1973, oil crisis was a big event that dramatically changed the geopolitical panorama of the entire world as a result of the embargo imposed by members of the Organization of Arab Petroleum Exporting Countries. The Middle East war produced developments all over the world today. The oil-producing countries of the Arab world decided to use their oil as a political weapon. In October 1973,
0: members of the then Organization of Arab Petroleum Exporting Countries, or OAPEC, led by King Faisal of Saudi Arabia, declared an oil embargo targeted at nations that had supported Israel during the Yom Kippur War. This war was also known as the Ramazan War or the Fourth Arab-Israeli War. Fought briefly from the 6th to the 25th of October of 1973. Now, the oil embargo was initially aimed at Canada, Japan, Netherlands, the United Kingdom, and of course, the United States. But later, it got extended to Portugal and South Africa, as well. Why do we call it the oil shock? Because by the end of March 74, the price of crude oil had risen nearly 300%. This was later called the first oil shock, followed by the second oil shock in 1979.
1: This is unreal. Isn't this disgusting? Why doesn't anybody contact the president? Why is he letting this happen to us?
0: line today is longer than it's ever been. I have no explanation for it. I think it's terrible. I really think it's terrible. I'm been here for an now already. This is the second gas line this morning. I've been in two gas lines already. Been in both lines over an hour. And
1: I'm out of gas. Yeah. Dead out. Well, my son is trying to see how much gas we have left in the tank and whether um. we can make it out on the Sawmill River Parkway. There's no shortage. I don't believe there's a shortage.
0: So... Is this deja vu for you, Mr. McNally?
1: You know, it is, but Arjit and you aptly describe the understanding of that Arab oil embargo and the shock. I think there are some underappreciated aspects of it. And I talk about this often in my book and so forth. The Arab-Israeli War of 1973 was the third in a series of wars that began in 1956. And then there was another one in 1967. The 1956 Suez crisis actually saw the biggest disruption in oil market history. More oil as a percent of global supply was disrupted in 1956, yet it did not cause a global oil shock. In 1967, there was another Arab-Israeli war, another enormous supply disruption. It did not cause an oil shock. Yet in 1973, as you noted, there was a war. There was actually a quite small disruption. The embargo, which was really in some ways a redirection of supply, was actually quite small, certainly relative to 1956. Why did it cause a global oil shock? And that's because of something we've lost memory of, and I talk about it in my book. The year prior, in March of 1972, the united states specifically the state of texas which had been the opec the saudi arabia of the oil market for four decades it lost control of the global oil market it went to full production and the chairman of the texas railroad commission he called it a damned historic occasion because he knew with that act after four decades of being the supplier of last resort, the regulator of the market. United States was handing over supply and power to Arab producers. To paraphrase Mao Zedong, power in the global oil market flows through the barrel of spare production capacity. So I would argue that the US loss of control in 1972 was actually sort of forgotten important factor. The second thing is, and you mentioned this, What really was occurring in the early 70s was the Saudis and other countries, Libya, were taking control of prices. When the Arab oil embargo started out, the price of global crude oil was about $3 a barrel. Immediately, they raised it to $5 a barrel. And by the end of 1973, just increased global crude oil prices to $11 a barrel in about four months. And they did that by just sort of administratively increasing it. So to your point, sometimes I think we tend to overdo the embargo side of things, the actual reduction of supply, and lose sight of what you described, this transfer of historic power in terms of spare production capacity from the United States to Arab oil and producers led by Saudi Arabia, and the imposition by just fiat of higher crude oil prices. Those are aspects of this crisis, I think, that are often lost in the broader discussion.
0: You know, and I was talking to a lot of international oil traders who believe that this is not going to be 1973 or anywhere close, but they predicate their thesis on the fact that both Saudis and the UAE, and you've also mentioned this, have significant spare capacity that they will use to curb prices. And that is because of MBS's promise to White House that he is willing to boost production early next year if crude prices are high as a goodwill gesture to the U.S. Congress for a deal in which the kingdom would recognize Israel and in return get a defense pact with Washington, Saudi, and of course the U.S. But it's not so straight-jacketed or a binary anymore.
1: So, The Wall Street Journal report on Saudis increasing production to help with the deal and then uh, spare capacity, two great points. So as you mentioned, Arji, prior to the Hamas attack on Israel, there were press reports that the Saudis would be willing to increase oil production next year to lower oil prices and help Congress in the United States pass laws that would be necessary to help with a normalization between Israel and Saudi Arabia and U.S support for Saudi nuclear activities, et cetera. I have questions about the veracity of that. I think it'd be surprising if the Saudis would allow geopolitics to affect their oil production that way. They take stability in the oil market very seriously, and I think they would be very cautious about that. But in any event, that has been OBE'd, if you will, overtaken by events since October 7th. Now there's a freeze on those normalization talks, and the question becomes, as you mentioned, There's about five million barrels a day of spare production capacity in the world. And isn't that something that we can rely on to protect the world from oil price shocks if this war expands? And my answer would be no, because all, just about all of that five million barrels a day of spare production capacity is north or inside the Arabian Gulf, north of the Strait of Hormuz. It's in Saudi Arabia and UAE primarily, and there are only limited options for redirecting Saudi oil exports around the Strait of Hormuz and the UAE. You can do a little bit to the Red Sea and Fujairah, but not a lot. So were we to have a conflict in the region involving a halt in flow from the Strait of Hormuz, or were there to be attacks on physical infrastructure, as we saw in 2019 with the, Saudi, the Iranians attacking Avqaik and Quresh, we would not only interrupt a lot of flow of energy, but we'd also bottle up or threaten the lion's share of spare production capacity. This is the challenge when you have geographical concentration, not only of supply and exports, but also spare capacity in that region.
0: If we can segue a bit, we've been talking a lot about oil And talk about the bigger geopolitical aspects, infrastructure, also the maritime routes, for example. Now, post-G20 or at the G20, one of the key announcements that was made was this India-Middle East-Europe corridor. And India played a key role in putting all the stakeholders together. So in that, the role of Mumbai, Dubai port, Haifa in Israel... Where Indian conglomerate Adani is the largest shareholder, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, where the railroads are being planned, need to act in concert, as well as the European stakeholders,
1: of course. For the moment, do you think it's pause for that project? You know, unfortunately, for that ambitious project to make to progress, and India lying really geographically at the intersection of Asia. The Middle East and Europe, for those enormous infrastructure projects to progress, for political and business relationships associated with that endeavor to deepen, you must have a modicum of geopolitical stability. And unfortunately, we do not have that now. If anything, with the result of following on the Hamas attack on Israel, things are going south in the other direction. Also, China—it's hard to overstate how differently the United States and Europe view China relative to just a few years ago. China was seen as going to be the workhorse of the energy transition, and that involved trade and interconnections and so forth in the region. All of that has changed, though. And even in Europe, even in Italy, even in places that have been very supportive of sort of inviting China to play a role in the transition, there's a deeper sense that China is an adversary, that China not be able to dominate the clean energy movement uh, and that tariffs are being put in place and trade restrictions and so forth. And so China's changing role, the isolation, if you will, of China also poses a geostrategic threat to this corridor, this Indo-Middle Eastern European Mm -hmm. corridor.
0: And this conflict escalating just before COP28 in Abu Dhabi It almost makes me feel that, you know, even before it has started, it's beset with challenges. And the cynical me is getting stronger than the
1: optimist me. You know, it's remarkable. At the Glasgow COP a couple of years ago, oil companies were not even allowed inside. We were in a very different place. Now... The UAE, the world's leading oil and gas producers, is hosting it. And oil and gas companies were playing a large role. And the discussion had shifted. It's no longer keep it in the ground when it comes to oil and gas. It's how can we still use oil and gas, but in a way that's consistent with emissions reductions. So discussion of hydrogen, CCUS, carbon capture, et cetera. So the discussion had shifted. And for some in the environmental community, this was not a good thing. Uh, they were very upset that the UAE is hosting and that the discussion about had shifted from sort of keeping oil and gas in the ground to living with it and producing it, but in a way that's consistent with emissions reductions goals. So it was going to be tough already. You know, uh, President Biden just today, uh, there's, there's, he had to cancel his trip to Colorado. He was going to visit a wind farm in Colorado to talk about green energy. Instead, there's some discussion he will be going to Israel perhaps, but he had to cancel that trip because of what's happening in Gaza and the region. And that is in a way emblematic of the broader sort of distraction that the world's going to go through with regard to, you know, other issues like climate change, taking a back seat to more pressing and urgent geopolitical problems. And because of all these headwinds that you and I started talking about, geopolitical, macroeconomic energy. Because of these enormous headwinds, the pace of the transition and how we transition is being reconsidered. And it's being reconsidered by governments, investors, civil society, across the board.
0: And that's exactly what my next point was, that Conflicts or wars are expensive. And now if we juxtapose that with the climate finance bill, which roughly has been estimated to be around $17 trillion, it is indeed expensive. Now, advanced nations like the UK have already reneged on financing promises. Rishi Sunak is pretty unequivocal about that. Multilateral development banks and development financial institutions do not have that kind of resources to provide that scale of funds. And private capital, who many believed would come in and fill up this vacuum, they hate volatility of any kind. And what's going on today and around the world is nothing but more volatile. So, where does all that
1: leave us? That leaves us in a very different place than we were, say, between the signing of the Paris Agreement in 2015 and the election of Joe Biden in November of 2020. I think that will, will, historians will look back on that period, that euphoric plateau, as a period when investors and governments were most confident about a quick and easy uh, transition, to use that term. But since 2020, RG, we have been in a very different world. Structural, economic, geopolitical, and energy factors have completely changed with the result that we are having a different idea about how quickly and in what fashion we can achieve our climate change goals and that includes looking at affordability and security of energy while decarbonizing and that leads you to different pathways different options different technologies and different approaches but we can't change these underlying structural factors so last
0: question before i let you go After 27 COPs, do you still believe this time, the 28th time, something tangible
1: will get delivered? I don't think we'll have much tangible out of this COP. I think that's because of the stark divisions between those who just prioritize a quick transition and decarbonization at any cost and those who are more pragmatic. And unfortunately, I think those divisions will prevent meaningful progress. I think, though, that I'm I'm in a way optimistic. I think we have to reconsider, and we will, because climate change is not going away. Public concern of that is is very high. At the same time, we have to uh, deal with climate change in light of prevailing reality, scientific, geographical, technological, political. And so I think uh, there's going to be a healthy rebalancing in the discussion. It won't happen at this COP28, but I think the the new course towards pragmatism towards inclusion, towards security and affordability, as well as renewables and decarbonization. I think that's a healthy change in direction and is going to be more promising, perhaps in future COPs, for how we manage manage emissions and, uh, and the challenge of climate change. Robert McNally,
0: founder and president of Rapid and Energy, thank you so, so very much for taking time out, explaining this wide gamut of subjects from oil to gas, the geopolitics, the history of a very volatile region, and potentially what lies ahead as the world tries its level best to make a transition in terms of from fossil fuels and hydrocarbons to green energy. Thank you
1: once again for talking to Economic Times early in the morning. Arjit, thank you so much for having me on. I hope we can meet in person one day and I really appreciate the offer to share some time with you today. Thank you very much.
0: This episode was brought to you by sound editor Rajas Nayak and producer Surohini Jain. Executive producers, Anupriya Nair, Anirban Chaudhary and yours truly. Thank you for listening in and if you like the episode, do share it on your social media networks. A new episode of the Morning Brief Podcast drops every Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday. Don't miss it. It streams on Amazon Prime Music, GeoSavan, Spotify, Apple, and even Google Podcasts. And of course, ET's own audio platform, ET Play. Goodbye, and good luck. All clips used in this episode belong to their respective owners. Credits are mentioned in the description.